turn with me over to 2 Timothy. We're going to talk today about discipleship. It's our core series, core value series, and uh, we've already spoken about lordship, and today we're going to talk about discipleship. There are five core values we have in this house, lordship, discipleship, evangelism, family, and leadership development. Those five things are the things we weave all of our activity through to make sure that we are serving the, the mission and vision of this church well with the right kind of people, not just with people but the people who believe the right kind of thing that can replicate what we believe is most important to our progress in this community. And so today, discipleship is the focus. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You therefore, my son, Paul is writing to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Lord, help us as we study. Three things about this passage that I'd like to focus, focus upon. One, how we need to attach ourselves to people. Two, how we need to access the supernatural to make that last. And then three, what it means for us to take this gospel and feel like we must now transfer it. We allot a, a proper place in our value system to give it to something else. Give this gospel to somebody else. An allotment of truth. Um, the background of this passage is Paul is doing what he can to try to help Timothy. Now, he's written to Timothy twice. This is the second letter. The first letter was one of encouragement. Timothy happens to be the pastor of the church at Ephesus, a church about whom we have more information than any other church in all the New Testament. We have Acts chapter 19 when Paul went there and how the church got started. We have the book to the church at Ephesus called Ephesians. We have these two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy about the church at Ephesus. And then we have in the book of Revelation, God speaking as one of the seven churches in the region of Asia Minor about what Ephesus was like and how they had lost their first love. So we see the beginning, and we see the beginning of the end of the church at Ephesus. More information about this one church than any other church in all of Scripture. And Timothy is pastoring this church now. He's a young man, young, mid-30s maybe. But he's, he's doing a fairly good job. He needs his mentor's help, and that's Paul. But something has happened from Timothy 1 to Timothy 2. Paul doesn't say the same things in Timothy 1 that he said in Timothy 2. And there's really no reason to say the same things because he's writing from a very different perspective in, in 2 Timothy. Paul is in prison. And Paul is about to go to be with the Lord. He realizes, he said, I've, I've run my race, I've finished my course, I'm done. He knew that he would, this is one imprisonment out of which he would not emerge. He was going to die. They were going to kill him. And they cut off his head, Rome did. And you know when you're at the end, you want the people most close to you to be around. You're trying to figure out who is most important in my life. How can I get them close? Because I want to say some things to them. I, I want to connect with them before I depart. And there was probably nobody more close than Timothy to Paul. This is why he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Timothy, my son. Now, Timothy was not his natural son. He was his adopted son in ministry, if you will. 
He met Timothy on his second missionary journey as, as he was going through a town called Lystra in Acts chapter 16. And uh, Timothy was the, the son of a man and a woman. Uh, one, the, the mama was a, um, was a Jewess who had become a Christian. And we don't know whether the dad was a believer or not, but it says he was Greek. Now that's significant because of what Timothy had to do in order to follow Paul later. But as Timothy was there and Paul was ministering, he saw some promise in this young man. And he went to his parents and said, um, can I have him? Now, that might seem a little strange to we Americans who think it's, wait a minute, you're asking for my child, what's wrong with you? Weird. But remember, this version of our understanding of what it means to raise a son to maturity was not the, the ancient world's understanding. What we do when a child gets at the age of like Timothy is we say to the University of Virginia, please take him now. JMU, take him now. Technical school, take him now. Do whatever you need to do to help him not come back here. <laughs> Raise him well in education so he can get on his own and get a job. That's what we say. But back then, there were no universities. There were, there were trade schools, if you will, mostly sponsored by individual men who would take an apprentice on to train them in hopes that that person could take over their job. So when any parent gets a son who's 16, 17, and they realize that son really doesn't want to take over the family business, but he's called to do something else, and they see a competent person coming from the outside who's got an established work, business, or ministry, and they're looking at your boy thinking, I could use him, you're thinking, how quick can we make this happen? <laughs> you are Paul the Apostle. There's no one who supersedes you in terms of influence for kingdom purposes. Maybe some who equal you, the apostles there in Jerusalem, but none who supersede you. What a privilege. You want my boy? Wow. They were happy to be able to give him to Paul because he would then become what Paul was. That's the whole idea of apprenticeship back then, mentoring what we now know to be discipleship. You're going to make him like you and you're... You're thinking that maybe he could inherit what you have? Whew. I mean, we knew our boy was great, but we didn't, we didn't know he was going to be thought of as being that great. Paul takes Timothy on. And he doesn't take him on just as an apprentice. I mean, he calls him his son. That's how close these two were. And Timothy thought of Paul as being a father. It's one thing for one person to think, I have a close relationship with you. But if it if it's really going to be close, it needs to be reciprocated, does it not? So I can think you're my son, but if you don't think I'm your father, it doesn't make any difference what I think. Timothy really thought that Paul was his dad and that he was training him up to take over something or to be deployed to do something great. They loved one another deeply, and he followed Paul just about through everything. He says, my son, and... <laughs> The, the, the initiation to come to be Paul's son was quite significant. The price paid was more than probably most men in this room would ever want to pay. And even if you had the opportunity, you would still say no. In order to take Timothy with him, see, Paul's standard operating procedure, this is what he did in most of the times when he went into a city, is that he'd go into the Jewish synagogue area. 
Because these, the Jews had some understanding of Old Testament writ. What things ought to be and how they went and who the prophets were. And the prophets spoke of the Messiah. He could use that as a jumping off point to begin to talk to them about who Jesus was. And then prove that he was the Messiah by the resurrection and his ability to rule and take kingdom principles beyond those which could ever be established by a monarch on the earth. That he is king of all the world and he's trying to establish his kingdom beyond that which is the little nation of Israel. And so <clears throat> that would be his normal way of communicating. But because he went to the Jews first and they would use that moment as a jumping off point to reach the Gentiles because we are the people to whom he was called primarily in establishing a beachhead in the synagogues with believers who were Jewish that now would become Christians, he would then branch off into the rest of the community and reach people like us who didn't have a Jewish heritage. But in order to go to the Jewish folks, he, he needed to have everybody comply with what all the Jews thought were best practices. Mm. This, is where come, this is where the sacrifice for Timothy gets big. His daddy was Greek. His mama was Jewish. Greeks didn't believe in circumcision, generally. Not bad or good, just reality. So Timothy wasn't, like, circumcised as a baby. But he was going to travel with a man that spent a lot of time with Jewish people and needed the credibility necessary to get their attention to have no offense whereby they would say, I can't listen to you because you got him. He can't even be in my presence. He's a Gentile. Even though his mama was Jewish and you would get your Jewish heritage from your mother, he's acting like a Gentile. Can't do it. That's the way the Jews thought. So everybody's excited, right? Timothy, you want to come? Mom, dad, you want him to come, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's take out the knife. Why? Because we got to circumcise you. What's Peter doing? <laughs> Maybe Barnabas needs a sidekick. I'm just, I'm just saying, what are you, you trying? You mean, listen. <laughs> listen, we'll just lie. <laughs> I mean, it's a little lie. We ain't got to tell nobody. Are you kidding me? Why? I mean, does, am I going to be any more right with God if I do this? Nope. Doesn't have anything to do with you being right with God. You mean I'm doing this for people? For people? Can't they just get over it? Yeah, you're doing it for people. And you're not going to have a voice to those people unless you do it. See, this is why Paul was able to say, and he was able to do this kind of thing, because Paul had the philosophy I become all things to all men that I might win some. And some of us out here have this idea that I, I don't have to prove nothing to nobody. I'm right with God. I, I, don't, I don't have to be concerned as to whether they're happy with me or not. I'm my own man, and, and man's fickle anyway, and I'm just, okay. You obviously don't want to be a leader. Because leadership requires that you sacrifice for the sheep. That's what it requires. And if you are a leader and nobody is following you, you are just on a very long walk. <laughs> you obviously don't want to be a leader. 
I'm not trying to magnify my own commitment to you, but you have no idea what I sacrifice in order for you to follow. It's not just about me preaching well on a Sunday. It's not about me performing. It's not about me acting right when you can see me or my staff for that matter. You have no idea what we require in order for you to be helped. Stuff you don't even see. Why? Because we don't do it. Stuff that you wouldn't, you, you don't have to question my staff, this church staff, about things because they don't put themselves in positions to be compromised. That's the standard. Now, if somebody blows it, they blow it. I can't monitor. I'm not the, 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 the holy police every day. I'm not trying to convict folks on a regular basis, but we have standards. And those standards are upheld by, uh, uh, by the most part by our staff. And they believe in them. It's not that they are held to them by ball and chain. They love it because they love you. And so they say, does this require me to, 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 to I, do I must do this? And I have to do, will God care? No, but they will. They will. And if you want to lead them, you're going to have to do this. I said yes before I read the fine print. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. He did it. He did it. And it's a physical metaphor for what discipleship looks like on a, on a regular basis. Meaning this. When I disciple people, I don't expect them to call me dad. I don't but I treat them like my kids. I love them like that. I honor them. I speak to them with truth. I tell them how great they're doing. I build them up, thank them, recognize things that they might think don't even need to be recognized, but I let them know, I appreciate the little things you do. But all the while, I'm like a surgeon who recognizes you've come to me in order to be better. And you have no idea that there's a malignancy in your life. There's, th there's some things that need to be cut out. And like Paul with Timothy, who brought a scalpel to the party, I bring the sword of the word to the moment as a scalpel to say, you know, when you say that, it really hurts people. You can't do that. When you do that, Ah, it messes people up. They don't understand. So you need to stop that. Cutting. So that the rough edges in people's lives become more smooth to you. This is what discipleship is. And you know what happens? The people who submit to it, and you don't have to. My staff has to. They're paid to. <laughs> but other people, they don't have to. They don't have to. But what happens is this. You judge your progress on the basis of what you're not anymore. And you feel really good about it because at least you're not running the streets. At least you're not getting drunk. You're not, you're not, you're not, well, maybe you are, I don't know. <laughs> we need to have a talk. You didn't respond as quickly as I thought you would on that one. But at least you're not what you used to be, and you think, I'm not what I used to be, so I'm good. But you don't measure it by what you could be. 
And discipleship helps you to become more of Jesus faster. Because you do not have a relationship with Jesus that is clear enough whereby you can see all your flaws. You don't. You can't hear him well enough by yourself. And he, he crafts it that way because he wants you to depend upon other people. I'm not talking about codependency. I'm talking about interdependency. You're not called to walk by yourself. You're called to be helped. I get help. I've been walking with Jesus for over 37 years. I still need help. I call people and say, do you see this in my life? Can you help me with this? I haven't seen it, but other people say it. I need to know whether I'm hearing right from others or not. Pastor Jim and I had a conversation this week where I was on the phone with him saying, help me with this. I need your eyes. I need your wisdom. I don't want to walk stupid. And as you walk with Jesus, so long as you know what the greatest danger is, the arrogance that you develop as a result of having enough victory to think you can do it on your own. And so I intentionally depend upon people more because I don't trust myself. You need people to come with their scalpel and say, cut that right there, please. Don't do that anymore. Stop that. Stop that. Timothy, my son, you need to attach yourself to people. Now, I know Jesus said the thing, call no man father. I, I understand that. But you have, to, you have to take everything Jesus said in context. He was saying, call no man father to people who looked to the religious leaders of the day who wanted and thought they deserved to have the title as father in their life so that they could have more authority than their natural fathers because they were spiritual. And they were taking the place of. I'm not trying to take the place of anything. All, all I'm trying to do is supply what is lacking. There are so many studies on what it, what it means to be fatherless, the delinquency that happens in the lives of children, the what they don't get. There are studies even show that somehow or another something chemically happens in the brain by the age of five if they don't have consistent male input that is almost unalterable except by the grace of God. I don't know whether any of that is true, but folks are looking at that stuff. And they're saying, we know this to be true. Even if the stats might be skewed, even if the results, we may not understand. We know this to be true, that it's better to have a dad than not. Even if you got a bad one. See, that's the point at which you needed to say amen too. But, so, <laughs> but see, some, some of y'all have had some really bad dads. I'm not talking about abuse. Though even through abuse... You ought to be able to find gratefulness unless you choose to live with your pain and your bitterness the rest of your life. Why do you think God made the fifth commandment? It's, it's part of the Decalogue. The things that were most important for all of humanity, for all of humanity at any place at any time, God said, number five, honor mom and dad. He didn't say honor mom and dad if they were great. Why? Not to gloss over all their flaws. Not to pretend like the pain doesn't exist. But to help you. Because if you let the pain define you of what they didn't do and what they weren't and how they hurt you, it'll follow you to your children. Secondly, every parent has this question. I don't care if you're good. I don't care if you're great. If you did the best job since Adam did with Abel, 
I don't care. Every parent has this question. Did I do good enough? When I went off that one time, is that going to permanently damage their brain? Is their soul so messed up now because I said what I said that they're going to carry that on like and have to get to a psychiatrist and take medication? Every parent has this thing in the back of their brain that says, did I do good enough? And may I say this? The answer is no. You didn't. Nobody does good enough. Everybody deserves a better parent because they have Adam and Eve and, and their descendants as parents. We all have a sinful nature. The issue is this. The only way you can be healed from that is not by getting an answer that makes you feel better. The way you get healed from it is by the child coming back and saying, thank you. Thank you. It's having the big perspective. And what it does is it, it allows the, the child to feel something different other than pain. That's legitimate because some thanksgiving needs to be given. And secondly, it allows the parent to heal. Things happen. God thought it was big enough to make it number five. Jesus said, call no man father because the generation to which he came was usurping the position of father in in the society and taking the place of the parents and making them the primary focus and the only way that somebody could get to God was through them. It was wrong. The emphasis was wrong. But the concept was not. That's why Paul is able to use it freely and say, Timothy, you're my boy. I care for you. Now, the, the, the problematic part of discipleship although there's great benefit that comes, the other part is that you're actually dealing with another human being. That's hard because that human being is flawed and has a different mindset about life than yours. What do you do when you don't agree? What do you do when you, you have issues with the person who is discipling you or who you're discipling? What do you do? This letter was written because Timothy had distanced himself. The first chapter, Paul says to Timothy, why, don't, don't be ashamed of me or, or the gospel for which I am suffering. Timothy had kind of, yeah, he loved his dad, but mm, he wasn't real close to him right now. And we don't exactly know why, but we can surmise. Paul was tough. Paul was a tough leader. Not tough on people, but in terms of requiring stuff of them. He wasn't mean. He wasn't harsh. But he didn't let up. And he required you to follow him just as he followed the Lord. So if he followed the Lord into difficulty, you were going into difficulty. And now he was in prison, and you would think that Timothy would run to him. I mean, this is his dad in the Lord. This was a person who had more influence in his life and shaped his life, occupation, ministry, everything. But he was distancing himself. Why are you ashamed of me? And we think, although we have no record of what I'm about to say, we think this is how it, how it happened. Acts chapter 21 is one of the best examples. Paul is in Caesarea, and he's there with Philip, who has four daughters who are prophetesses. 
and everybody's in the house, spiritual things are going, there's a big church meeting happening, and Agabus, who's a prophet in the area, stands up, looks at Paul, and says, I see the man going to Jerusalem like this. And Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. He says, I see him, and he took off his belt, wrapped his hands like this. He said, they're going to bind him, and they're going to treat him poorly and beat him. Now, whenever a prophet says that kind of stuff to somebody, it's a warning, it's information, and generally speaking, most people in the church would say, hallelujah, we have, Paul knows, we all know now, he won't go, yes, thank you, Agabus, thank you, Lord, for revealing it to Agabus, this is huge. And then Paul looks at him and says, well, thank you, but all you've done is turn the radio to the station I listen to regularly. That's all you've done. Every place I go, the Holy Spirit tells me, there are persecutions and difficulties that await me. So why would I stop going to Jerusalem? The whole church, is, you, you felt this thud. Just, do you always have to go to the hard places? Can't you do? Aren't there people, places you can go to that really want to hear and not beat you up? You see what's happening to your staff? I have some standards in this house. And our staff lives up to them. And people who serve have to live. And and, and I might be tough to live with. I get it. I get it. But I I don't hold a candle to Paul. Church, we're going on a missions trip. I want you to come with me. We're going to preach the gospel. People think, ooh, I get to spend some time with Pastor Brett. He's inviting me. That's cool. Great. I think I'm going to do that. Where are we going? North Korea. (laughs) Uh, Like, can I make an appointment with you when you come back? And after we go to North Korea, get beaten, and spend 18 months in jail, then we're going to go to Cuba. And then China. <laughs> Can't we go to Argentina? <laughs> I mean, they, they, they have a Catholic base down there. People want to hear the gospel. They're not going to put anybody in jail. Can't we? No, this is, this is where we're going. And if I continue to go in those environments, at some point you'd say, is anybody helping him? Is anybody help? I mean, I really like the gospel. Yes, yeah, I get it. Gosh, I mean, our pastor's been in jail for two out of the last five years. We haven't heard him. It's, it's, it's I mean, courageous gospel. Yes, but, hmm. This was Paul, except he did it for his entire ministry life. So now he's in jail. And I imagine amongst all of his staff and everybody else who knew him well, they're saying a little bit of this. They have to fight against it at least. We told him. We told him he'd go to jail. And he's in jail and he wants us to come and visit him now. And he's all, he's lonely. Of course he's lonely. He's in jail. To which Timothy may have given in. And saying this is what he does. We can't stop him. And I'm telling you. Sometimes you don't understand leadership and what they do. But they're hearing from God, and I'm not going to be one who, who begins to question whether Paul hurt. 
That's not the point of this sermon. The point is, Timothy, why did you distance yourself? Why didn't you stay close? Was it too difficult? Paul says, how come you don't suffer with me? Is it just that hard that you have to no longer consider me self-relationally tied to you? That you don't, it, it, am I an embarrassment to you with all of your friends? Why are you ashamed of me and my bonds? This is why he's writing this. To which brings me to my second point. You, you got to access supernatural power. At some point, somebody who disciples you or somebody you disciple is going to offend you. And you will, you will conveniently try to find somebody else. But this is why it says, Timothy, my son, be strong. And whenever it says therefore, you need to find out what the therefore is there for. So the therefore refers to what he said earlier in chapter 1 at the end. And he says this, Timothy, everybody who was in Asia when I was ministering in Asia left me. Phygelus and Hermogenes, they departed from, from me in ways that were particularly painful. The only one who stayed with me was a man named Onesiphorus. And he didn't stay with me. He actually had to find me because I was all by myself. May the Lord deal graciously with that man and bless his house. Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If, you, if you're going to identify with me, you've got to move into the supernatural because your entire flesh will want to run from everything I am. Be strong that is in the grace. Be strong that is in the grace. The grace is that which empowers somebody to do something beyond their natural capability. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. When you get into a discipleship relationship, in order to make it last, you have to find grace. And fortunately, I've been able to find grace, and so have those with me whereby we've been able to walk together for 30 years, and the people who disciple me and I disciple, sometimes it's a, it's a reciprocal relationship. I mean, I'm 57. I don't need hand-holding anymore, but I do need help. And so I have people who are my age, my peers, and we disciple one another. No, don't do that anymore. I tell them, stop that right there. Don't go there. Don't, don't purchase that property. That's not going to help me. I know what the Lord's doing. Don't do that with your kids. I'm telling you, we've been here before. They tell me, Pastor, do this, do that. I say, thank you so much. I didn't know, I didn't know, but you have helped me see what I didn't see before. I can't make, I can't make decisions on my own because if I do it wrong, it costs you. I need people. And we've given one another more than enough opportunity to say bye. We've hurt one another deeply. I'm not talking about people on this front row. I'm talking about people outside deeply. But we decided we're staying together. Why? Because we found strength in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You want to be discipled? You're going to have to do the supernatural. And you need to get part of our small groups. That's the place where it happens. Now, we've got our Leadership 215, which is like our church Bible school. We've got small groups in our men's ministry, our women's ministry, our small group ministry. There are places where you can be discipled in those environments. Get in there and get a part. And not only so you can get help, but so that you can be a help to somebody by getting help. That after you get help, then you're able now to give help. That's the way the kingdom progresses. It doesn't progress by having a good Sunday morning meeting. Lastly, he said this. After you grow strong in the grace of Christ Jesus, I want you to take the things that I've taught you, 
hold on to them, and then transfer them to somebody else who can then again teach somebody else. Paul's thinking generationally four deep. Himself, Timothy, the person Timothy is going to teach, and the person the person Timothy taught is going to teach. Four deep. That's the way discipleship ought to be. That I am now pouring into somebody who's going to pour into somebody else. Who's going to pour into somebody else? That's the way we all ought to think because that is kingdom progress with integrity rather than the fluff of just having a Sunday morning meeting that looks big. I'm grateful for you coming. I really am. I don't want you to go anyplace else. I'm glad you're here. But this is not discipleship, though it is discipleship oriented and that I am teaching you what to do. Discipleship that is complete is looking at someone to whom you are attached and saying, help me or I want to help you. One of the two or both. And allowing the progress of the kingdom to progress in your life like that. Can you say amen? Amen. We believe in discipleship here. This is the way we grow.